Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 7, 2018, focusing on repatriating previously taxed income and accessing foreign cash. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Jeff Endress, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Julie Allen, a PwC tax partner focusing on mergers and acquisitions, and Colin Ryan, a PwC advisory partner focusing on deals. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the use of repatriated cash focusing on share buybacks and deal activity. So why don't we move into another area of potential uses of cash that we've talked through, and that's the, the topic of share buybacks. We brought it up a little bit earlier when we went through the polling question, but Julie, Colin, you guys want to maybe cover sort of what some of the considerations are on the share buyback side? Sure. I'll, I'll start off first on that, and then Colin will jump in after. Um, this is one that I can't emphasize enough. It did get the lowest polling percentage, yeah. but a very important one to consider, and I think the most important thing to consider here is price. We hear a lot in the press about share buybacks and folks wanting to do, you know, companies wanting to do share buybacks because they've got this cash back at the lower rates. But a price that is favorable to exiting shareholders is not always going to be favorable to continuing shareholders. So this one is one that really has to be modeled out for the right price and the right situation, I would say. Um, some things, you know, we've seen some of the benefits that you come that can come from a share buyback, you know, the positive message to investors, the increase on the earnings per share or return on equity, you know, potentially appeasing an aggressive act of a shareholder or improving the balance sheet. I think all of those are examples of what's positive. But again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of making sure that the price is right and also making sure that it's the best decision for the company. You know, instead of sending cash to shareholders, companies, if they really want to grow or they want to invest, um, this is a perfect opportunity for them to take that cash to do that and not do the buyback. Um, maybe the only other point I'd make, and then call and feel free to jump in, is it's an important point to consider whether a dividend or a buyback is a better way to go. Sometimes, as I said, share buybacks are not the best way to go, but just a dividend might be a way to go if a company wants to do a dividend and then keep some of the, the cash to invest in their own business. That's all great points, Julie, and, and just to piggyback on that from a capital markets perspective, I couldn't agree more about looking at all what all of your different strategic alternatives are and looking at what the intrinsic value is of each of those and then putting the money behind that. Um, if you have uh, projects that aren't going to return your cost of capital, you should return that money to shareholders um, to give them the opportunity to redeploy it. And as we've seen through the earlier slide, approximately 40% of cash is returned on an annual basis to shareholders either through buybacks or or stock repurchases on the on the buybacks um, Ken I know you mentioned uh, a, a theme here in the Washington area that came up yesterday but from a from a pure investor standpoint you know it, it sends a good message to the street when you're doing a, a buyback because it essentially means that your your company's intrinsic value or management believes the intrinsic value of the company is uh, is greater than the market price um, you know, astonishingly, over the last three months through um, company announcements, there has been $200 billion, $200 billion earmarked for share buybacks. That's an astonishing amount, and it's twice the amount of last year. 
Um, on the dividend side, one-fifth of the S&P 500 companies have already increased their dividends versus zero companies have decreased their dividends. It's the first time that's ever happened, um, well, since 2011. And, and I think the last point that I'd make just on the, the dividend is once you increase a dividend, the, the, the messaging has to be absolutely crystal clear to investors, whether this is a one-time special payment or this is going to be a reoccurring payment. Because as soon as you increase that, that dividend rate, that's the new normal and that's the expectation for the go forward. Yeah, I mean, I'll comment a little bit on the share buyback, and it, it didn't surprise me that it was the, the lowest ranked, and, and that's because of a little bit of this policy stigma that's out there that is a little bit of what we're seeing right now, and that goes along the lines of, and this is Capitol Hill politics versus Wall Street politics, or Capitol Hill economics against Wall Street economics, I should say, and that is um, that share buybacks from a policy standpoint sometimes are viewed as negative because they're a give back to the shareholders who might be folks who are on the wealthy end from from that standpoint as compared to more maybe an economic view of that is to your point the highest return on the investment would be to return it to the shareholders who then can redeploy it into something that will create the right return on those dollars which could can be job creating can be growth creating in the US and it's it's sort of just following that trend through that I know the economists spend a lot of time working through that sometimes maybe isn't isn't viewed that way from a policy standpoint. So certainly our clients who are responding to that are seeing some of the, the negative press out there around people that are uh, engaging in share buybacks, and I think it drives some of the results out there. But nonetheless, to your point, it's it's a valid investment vehicle people Absolutely. need to think through. So. Absolutely. Um, Two more topics to go through from a standpoint of uh, use of cash. This one, we're going to go through some acquisitions, targets, investments, the deal side. Again, Julie Collin, I'm going to come back to you and talk about that. Then we'll get into some other investment opportunities before we get to our polling questions. So go ahead. Sure. And I think in this area, this is the second area that rated highest in what people are using the cash for. And it's definitely the, strong, the strongest start for any year since 2000 in the M&A activity. Now, there's been questions as to that, does that really relate to tax reform or does that relate to, you know, um, just the condition that the economy is in right now with M&A? So I think that's a, an important distinction. But I do think with this after-tax cash, with the lower corporate rate, with the repeal of the AMT, with the immediate expensing, I think it's an area where companies are looking to, to do mergers and acquisitions. And we might see a delay of that um, that's not right immediate as to what, what some may have expected, but it might be you know, eight to 12 months down the road or a year down the road, longer than that. And I think the reason why we're seeing a little bit of a delay is after tax reform, companies are really, many of them are focused on the elimination or the management of guilty. That's a big item right now. And so you're looking at transactions that really are soaking up those excess guilty credits or you know, stepping up the basis so that they can manage guilty. Um, it's also with many of the inbound clients, they're looking at out from under type transactions. And I think the thing that's driving that is, in addition to tax reform, is also just this is a perfect time for them to reevaluate, you know, where their assets are located within a group and how they want to appropriately align those. Um, really, the, the value chain transformation or strategic benefits, that's really what companies are looking at. And they're looking at how does this really fit into their business purpose analysis for how they want to run their operations from this point on. So I think that's adding to some of the M&A activity, but also maybe not the complete immediate M&A activity that we expected from tax reform. One point that I'll make, and then Colin, welcome your point of view on this Absolutely. also, is 
just the importance of modeling these decisions. I think many clients who thought that guilty wasn't going to be an issue for them or they thought they would immediately use the cash to do a share buyback or do a certain type of acquisition, now that they're trying to manage guilty, those transactions are changing. So I can't emphasize enough the importance of looking at each acquisition and modeling that and looking at that with their current modeling and seeing how that fits in. And then Colin, anything you'd add on the modeling side of that that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. All great points there, Julian. I'll try to touch upon each one as you went through it, just to give a little bit more perspective. The, the deal market's off to a strong start. Um, over the last six years, deal volume's up at a compound annual growth rate of 5% a year. So this year is no exception to that. Um, valuations are high, as I mentioned in Q4. Prices ticked up quite a bit um, because of tax reform or, or one uh, attribute of tax reform. And, and um you know, we are seeing M&A deals, but they are competitive. They are very competitive. And, you know, I was talking yesterday with a, a colleague and we were breaking it down to your point, will it drive, will tax reform drive additional deal activity? And I think we put it into two buckets. The first bucket really is companies that have always done deals will continue to do deals. They are doing deals because it's part of their business strategy. They're filling out their distinctive capabilities and progressing their overall business strategy. Then you have another pool of buyers that would have wanted to do deals but didn't have access to the capital because it was trapped overseas. So having this re repatriation of cash now puts them back in the M&A game where they can now divert from just solely investing internally or overseas to now looking at M&A targets. So I do think in that second pool that will tick up for the number of participants, which you know goes back to the competitive point. And I will say, you know, through the M&A process, it's absolutely paramount to have a very cohesive process. We, we did a, an analysis of clients that had a very structured guardrails, a fine set of K KPIs to make sure that they were hitting those. And you wouldn't believe the, the amount of success and types of returns that they received versus ones that, that didn't have that type of structure. And great point on the modeling, Julie, on, on the last point. I, I would say um, with tax reform, absolutely, you got to go back to your, your deal models and really hit the reset button to a certain extent to factor in all of these things that we've been talking about so far. Um, just a fun fact that when we looked at deal models pre-tax reform, approximately 75 to 80% of them either had some type of logic error or had some type of mathematical error. So even compound on top of that tax reform, it's only going to heighten it. I like that, just the human error of who right. put it in, right? Can you guys quickly hit on some of the other investment opportunities we need to talk through here? Sure, I think I can do that in a couple of seconds. I think, Colin, you, you addressed it well in saying companies need to look at their strategy on the last side and, and really focus on what is their strategy. I think this, these next two points really focus on that. They say there are other investment opportunities. They can give that money to their employees, you know, increased wages, increased bonuses, considering the PR impact of that, or using it for operations where they really need to invest. And I think we've hit on that a few times. If they're looking to expand or to really um, use it in manufacturing, this is a perfect time to do that. Yeah, and one other point I will raise in here is people are looking at the return that they can get out of funding the pension. Again, yeah. pension Agreed. contributions, getting a 35% deduction as long as it's, you know, it's funded before you file the tax return. So that, that's another piece that people are looking at. And I will say just on that last point of funding, I, I think we've seen a lot more domestic funding happening. And we actually modeled out for a client uh, funding in Europe versus funding in the U.S. And, and the returns were actually two to three times in the U.S. versus Europe. With that, thank you, panelists.
I think it's been a really great discussion. And for those of you who joined us for the discussion today, thank you so much for taking a portion of your day to, to uh, talk with us about tax.